As many of you know from your own life, whether it's been at work or school, in positions of leadership that you've held, business decisions or financial decisions that you've made, that your success has often risen or fallen on the basis of counsel that you've received. Presidencies rise and fall based on the advisors, the cabinets that they build around themselves. CEOs rise and fall based on the counsel that they receive from boards of directors. Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers often find great success or great frustration based on the kind of counsel that we receive in our own lives. Some of you have seen this born out in your own lives, not only late in life, but perhaps even young in life. Some of you who are single here, you've seen flourishing in your life, or perhaps you have seen pain in your life, in your dating relationships, perhaps, because you were given bad advice or you were given good advice. But all of us, all the time, are either giving or receiving advice. So the, the question really is not whether or not we are to be counselors or to be counseled. The question is whether or not we are good counselors or we are bad counselors. Whether we receive good counsel or whether we receive bad counsel. Psalm 11 is really all about the kind of counsel that we receive. David is finding himself faced with lots of trouble, and he is being surrounded with a group similar to Job's friends who are seeking to give him counsel in his dire circumstances. Can you relate to that? Something hard comes into your life, and all of a sudden, everybody's an expert on what you need to do and how you need to think and where you need to go. And sometimes it's really helpful. Sometimes it's not so helpful. This is what David is facing in Psalm 11. He's facing those who are showing themselves to be not so good at counsel. And he instead turns around and shows us and gives us a model for godly counsel. So as we turn now to Psalm 11, this is really the big idea. Kind of the heart of the counsel that, that David is going to give to himself and to the congregation as he preaches. And it's this. When facing trouble, flee to God. When facing trouble, flee to God. Let's read Psalm 11 together. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, you need to flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they've fitted their string, or their arrow to the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Oh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. It is God speaking. Every single word of it is as true as God is true. May he write it on our hearts so that we can walk in it to his glory by his grace. Well, we're going to see two sections. You can see it clearly outlined in your English Bible. We're going to see it divided in verses 1 through 3 and then picking up in verse 4 all the way to verse 7 is a second section. And what we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 is our first point, and that is this, our temptation to flee. Our temptation 
to flee. But then we're going to see in verses 4 through 7, our foundation for refuge. Our foundation for refuge. So we're really seeing two things, our temptation to flee, and then secondly, our foundation for refuge. This idea of refuge is what we find in verse 1. David says, In the Lord I take refuge. In the face of these counselors, David is restating his confidence. My confidence is in God. That is where I find my safety. That is where I find my comfort. That is where my security lies. And so he is turning his face against those who would seek to counsel him. Derek Kidner, the, the great commentator, said that this psalm is a spirited retort to some demoralizing advice. And that demoralizing advice we see in the second half of verse 1 through the end of verse 3. Here in the end of verse 1, we see counsel is given. This is what they're saying to him. They're saying, you, David, you need to flee like a bird to your mountain. And why is that? Well, because of how they are perceiving reality in verses 2 and 3. They said, behold, the wicked, they bend the bow. And they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So in there in verse 2, they are diagnosing the circumstances. But I'm sure much unlike many of us in here, their diagnosis leads in verse 3 to catastrophizing the outcome. Worst possible scenario. If the foundations are destroyed, what can we do? What we find in verses 2 and 3 is the counsel of despair. Their counsel offers no help and it offers no hope because their counsel offers no God. Did you notice that? In all of their counsel, from the second half of verse 1 to the end of verse 3, God is not mentioned once. Lots of practical advice. Lots of diagnosing circumstances. But no view or vision of God. And so we're going to give consideration, just briefly, to how our theological considerations should be informing our practical advice. But one of the things that we need to understand is that the bad advice that David is receiving is not in the advice to flee. The bad advice is not that David should flee. The bad advice, rather, is where David should flee. Hang with me for just a moment. One of the big themes in the Bible is the theme of God's mountain. You may remember in Genesis chapter 2, one river breaks into four rivers. The reason that one river breaks into four rivers is because there's high places that the rivers are traveling around. And that is why Ezekiel in chapter 28, the prophet Ezekiel, calls God's original creation the holy mountain of God. God's mountain is an image in the Bible that describes the place where God dwells with his people and he rules over them. So when God created Adam and Eve and he delegated to them the responsibility to exercise dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, he was walking with them in the cool of the garden. He was dwelling with them on his mountain, so to speak. It's where he dwells with his people. Well, sin had them removed, which is why we find in Revelation 21 at the end of the Bible, the apostle John having a vision. And that vision is of God's new creation. And that new creation he calls a great high mountain. And so a return to God's holy mountain is what characterizes all of the hope of God's people between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. That's why the psalmists Cry out, O Lord, who shall dwell on your holy mountain? Psalm 15. And then he answers, well, those who are righteous according to God's law. Again, in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? 
And then he answers those whose hearts have been cleansed and purified. And so a return to God's holy mountain is what characterizes the future hope of God's people. They long to see God's face and they long to dwell with his presence forever. This is what we see, this forward pointing hope. And it's always encapsulated by this image of God's mountain. Well, when you glance down at verse 4 and you see David talking about God's holy temple and you're and he's talking about the Lord's throne, all of these things are things that are related to the mountain of God, where God dwells with his people and he rules over his people. And so I want you to notice that really Psalm 11 is the tale of two mountains. And the advice that they're giving David, remember the bad advice is not that David should flee, the bad advice is where David should flee, and the advice that they give him at the end of verse 1 is not flee, therefore, to God's mountain. Did you notice this? Look at it. Flee to your mountain. Brothers and sisters, when you face trouble like David is facing trouble, where do you flee? Do you flee to God's mountain? Or do you flee to your mountain? Where do you go for refuge when life begins to squeeze you like a vice? Where do you go when pain comes rushing in like, like waves? Where do you look for security? To what or to whom do you turn for comfort or for hope? Is it in that bottle of wine? I fear it's become too popular among freedom-loving, rightly freedom-loving Christians to say things like, all I need is Jesus and a bottle of wine. Is it in food? That when life gets stressful, do you flee to the pantry? Is it in other relationships? Is it perhaps even in emotionally or physically compromising and damaging relationships that you continue to flee back to? You need the constant affirmation. Is it the dull glow of a screen late at night where you are able to escape reality for a moment and indulge the lusts of your flesh. Where do you flee for refuge? Where do you look for comfort? Or perhaps not even in your own circumstances, but what about in your life when, when the reality of your own sin is heavy upon you? When you see the guilt of your own lawlessness and transgression and you are weighed down, and you are crushed by it, where do you go? It's interesting. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, says you're going to go to one or another mountain. You're either going to go to Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and you are going to try to work and strive and dig your way out. Or you are going to go to Mount Zion, where Christ was given. And he will be your comfort. He will be your hope. He will be your refuge. And he will be your peace. The author says, but you, believer, you have not gone trembling in fear to Mount Sinai. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God that is in Christ. Where do you flee when your conscience torments you? Do you flee to Mount Zion and to the law? Do you look to your own efforts? Do you look to your own righteousness? Or do you flee to Christ's mountain, to Mount Zion, where righteousness is given freely, where purification for sins is given freely, where you can stand in Christ as one who is worthy of ascending the hill, because you're counted righteous according to the law of God, fulfilled by Christ. Where do you turn? What mountain do you turn to 
when it's time to flee. Do you flee to God's mountain or do you flee to Christ's mountain? But even in the ministry of our own church, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, not just where do I flee, but we need to ask ourselves also how do I counsel that when I am walking alongside others who are experiencing pain and hardship, what is the kind of counsel that I'm giving? Do I give the kind of counsel that we see here in verses 1 through 3 that is full of practical advice, but altogether lacking in theological consideration? Am I counseling my brothers and sisters to look to themselves and to flee to their mountain? Or am I encouraging my brothers and sisters to look to God and to His Word and His promises so that they might flee to Him and find refuge? On the one hand, there are some of us who are quick to run to a theological explanation of pain in one another's lives without giving proper and due consideration to the pain itself. And there are times where we just need to sit and we need to mourn with those who mourn. But we don't do that forever. That at some point we have to counsel, open our mouths, and we have to counsel and so would you consider yourself one who's prone merely to give practical advice? Or are you one to begin first with pointing your brothers and sisters to the glory and the grace of God in Christ? Do you even know how to do that? Oh, listen, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, if you go, I feel ill-equipped to that end, then you need to surround yourself with more mature brothers and sisters who do that well who give counsel well. You might get Adam Sandlin and go have coffee. Go, how do I do this? You might make sure that you're here on Wednesday nights when we talk about this, this fall, we talk about discipling. How is it that we help other people follow Jesus? One of the things that we're going to be considering is discipling others in difficult circumstances. How do you do that? Oh, well, you're going to want to make sure that you're present. If you don't know how, come be equipped. We long to equip you to that end so that you would be the kind of, of faithful believer who would not merely be a counselor of good advice, but would be a bringer of good news to your fellow brothers and sisters. What kind of counselor are you? So where do you flee? And how do you give counsel? So here, these counselors have catastrophized the future. The foundations are destroyed. What are we going to do? No hope, no help. Well, David in verse four turns and he goes, I have a foundation that can never be destroyed. And my foundation is fourfold. God is the foundation of his people and of their security forever. This is the whole point of verses four through seven. David is going to say alongside Moses, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. David is going to fix his eyes not on his circumstances and not to potential catastrophes and not to plans and backup plans to backup plans. He is going to fix his eyes on the character and the glory of God first. You notice in verses 1 through 3 that his counselors never mention God. But here in verses 4 through 7, David is going to use God's name, Yahweh, four times. That God is a God who reveals himself. He is personal. He is the God that makes promises. And he is the God that keeps promises. He is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. So when David appeals to the name of God, Yahweh, four times, he is appealing to the revelation of God, the God who has made himself known, the God who has made promises, and the God who keeps promises. He's looking to the promises of God that are rooted in the character of God. And each one of these four mentions of God's name corresponds with four things that form David's foundation. Number one, we're going to see in the beginning of verse four that God rules, that God rules. Secondly, we're going to see in the 
Second part of verse 4, that God sees. That God sees. Thirdly, we're going to see in verse 5 that God judges. And lastly, David's confidence comes from the knowledge in verses 6 and 7 that God rewards. So he's saying, my foundation is God. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be broken. And I, and that is because God rules and God sees and God judges and God rewards. Let's follow David's logic here, beginning in verse 4. He says here that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. God is the sovereign king over heaven and earth. He says that he is in his holy temple. Now, you've got to realize, David isn't thinking yet in terms of an earthly temple. Solomon's temple at this point isn't even a figment in his imagination. It hasn't even been built. This is still tabernacle age for Israel. Really, what he's talking about, that Hebrew word translated temple in your Bibles can also be translated palace. That his castle, his palace, that is where he is. Of course, all of this is imagery. It's not to say that God is there and not here. God is everywhere all the time. It's an image that's meant to, to, to give vibrancy to the reality of his universal lordship. That he is in his holy temple. He's in his palace. But not only that, he says that he is on his throne. This is the symbol of God's authority to rule and to judge. It's the place from which God governs everything. So here we are when the heavens seem to be shaking. When David's circumstance around him seems to be failing and the foundations seem to be crumbling, God isn't frightened. God isn't worried. God isn't shaken. Nothing happens in heaven above or on earth below that God does not ordain and overrule. God is sovereign. He rules. And if God's sovereignty is to be a comfort for us in times of trouble, it's not simply enough to acknowledge that he governs all things. We have to know how he governs all things. That's what David does here in verse 4. He acknowledges that not only that God rules over everything, but did you notice here that God's rule is a holy rule and it is a heavenly rule. God cannot rule in any way that is inconsistent with who he is by his very nature. This is what the old theologians would refer to as the simplicity of God. All that is in God is is God. And to think about one attribute of God is, in a sense, to think about all of God's attributes. He's not like a slice of pie that you can divide up. He's not a little bit of sovereignty and a little bit of love and a little bit of justice. He is all that he is. So to think of God's sovereignty is to think of it in terms of everything that God has revealed himself to be in his nature. God cannot rule in any way that is inconsistent with who he is. And since God is by nature, eternally and infinitely so, since he is by his very nature good and loving and just and wise, then his governance is always, must always be good, loving, just, and wise. It can be no other. Obadiah Sedgwick. For all you pregos out there. Give you five dollars if you name your next kid Obadiah. <laughs> or Sedgwick. Obadiah Sedgwick, 17th century Westminster divine said this. Divine providence is an external action of God whereby he conserves and governs all things wisely, holily, that is, in a holy way, and powerfully to the admiration of his glory. God's providence, that is, his personal governance and preservation of all things, is the work of an infinitely wise and good and powerful God. 
And so even when you and I can't see or understand all of the details of how each one of our stories play out, we can nevertheless cast ourselves on the one who cannot act in any way contrary to who he is. And who he is is what gives us comfort that we need in a world full of perplexing trials. For David, God's sovereignty wasn't just a theological, an abstract theological idea. It wasn't just something that more intellectually minded people debate about in ivory towers, but is no earthly good. For David, the idea that God is still on his throne was not a trite or cheesy Christianese. For David, God's holy and heavenly rule was his entry point for comfort in times of trouble. When you're facing times of trouble, is your entry point to comfort the sovereignty of God? That's David's entry point. He says, God rules. That is foundation stone number one. Everything is under his control. I may not see how he's governing all things, but I know he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That he is, as Joseph proclaimed, though this world intends many things for evil, God intends it for good. Why? So that all of his purposes might perfectly come to pass. This was the comfort of our Savior. On more than one occasion, he quoted not only Old Testament prophecy, but predicted his own death. He knew what was coming, and he was staring down the barrel of the cross, knowing that bullet was going to get fired. It wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. He knew it. And his comfort was not merely in his mission or his ministry. His comfort was ultimately... In his father's sovereign plan. To cause wicked men to drive him to the cross. Those men being driven by God. In such a way that atonement for the world might be made. And many might come. And be reconciled to God in Christ. Christ's comfort was that every step of his ministry was a fulfillment of God's sovereign plan for his own life. And brothers and sisters, though we may not enjoy the full knowledge that Christ enjoyed by virtue of being the Son of God, we can be confident in the very same thing. That we can look to Christ. And if we are in Christ, fueled by his grace, we can enjoy the same kind of confidence in God's good and wise and just rule over every aspect of our lives. God rules. That's the first thing. Secondly, in the end of verse 4, we see that God sees. That God sees. His eyes see, says David. His eyelids Test the children of man. So here it is, beginning of verse 4. God is sitting on his throne. He's up in his palace. And he is now, into verse 4, he is watching the world of men. And that world, see, can, can literally be translated to gaze or to scrutinize. It's why the context leads to his eyelids are testing the children of man. His eyelids are this idea that he's squinting his eyes the way that one might squint to test, to examine, to scrutinize something up close. He is scrutinizing the children of men. He sees everything. This is what the Proverbs say. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. And so, brothers and sisters, when it seems to us that God isn't doing anything, we can be confident by what he's revealed of himself in his word right here that he is carefully watching and weighing the thoughts and the intentions and the actions of every person. 
The wicked, all the way back in verse 3, they thought they could shoot in the dark. But God sees. Most things are hidden from our sight. And no doubt, those things that are hidden from us, when we know they're out there, okay, I know danger's out there, it's dark out there, and there's arrows pointing at me. That can be a cause for great anxiety, can't it? David's comfort is that God sees what he cannot see. What is fully in the dark for David is in the brightest light for God. Nothing escapes his gaze at any point because God is everywhere all the time. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He is omnipresent, all places at all times. He is all-knowing. That is omniscient. He knows all things at once. Nothing escapes him. He's under no threat of a coup. There's no political backbiting. There's no schemes behind his back that he is unaware of that will ultimately dethrone him or impeach him. He not only knows everything, but he is, according to the first half of verse 4, because he's sovereign, he is guiding all that he knows to his desired ends. He sees everything. And David goes, oh, that makes me feel a whole lot better because this world's really dark. And when I'm tempted to anxiety because of all those things out there that I can't see and the outcomes that I can't predict, I know that God sees what I can't see. And I'm going to flee to him. He is my refuge. His eyes see everything. The Apostle John tells us that this was true of Jesus as well. That Jesus, quote, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's not just that God sees what's on the outside of man, our circumstances. It's that God sees what none of us can see. That is our very motives and our intentions. So we might look all put together on the outside, but God knows what's going on on the inside. And so did Christ. That's why John, when he saw Christ exalted in his heavenly glory, he reported that his eyes were like a flame of fire. They were holy and purifying, exposing everything that it looks at. There is nothing in your life that you can hide from God. You may have walked in this morning hiding large swaths of your life from your brothers and sisters, but there's nothing in your life that is hidden from God. And God's knowledge of everything and in seeing everything is the foundation for his judging. All hearts are open before Christ. Every desire and intention is known to him. And when we stand before Jesus, we stand before the God who sees. We stand before the God who judges. And that's our third. We've seen that God rules, that God sees, and based on his sovereignty and all that he sees and tests, God, verse 5, also judges. Look at this. First of all, he tests the righteous, and then we're going to see that he tests the wicked. Judges the righteous, judges the wicked. Notice verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, he says. That word tests, we see it again at the end of verse 4. It refers to the process of proving the worth of precious metal. That God tests the righteous to prove the genuineness of their faith. To prove that they are what they say they are. That they're not make-believers. That's why Peter writes, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, here's the reason. Here's the reason, A, that you rejoice. Here's the reason, that you're being grieved by various, by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes when it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who you really are and what you really believe about God and his word isn't revealed in times of prosperity. It's revealed in times of pain. And that is God's grace. It is God's grace to expose us 
and to burn out of us all that which is false and untrue and to purify in us all of those things which are true and godly so that we might grow by his grace in holiness and in hope. This is the goal of every testing. This is why we rejoice. And yet, as we've seen earlier, many of us are still tempted. All of us, I imagine, are still tempted to flee, not to God's mountain where he tests by his grace, but rather to flee to our own mountain, to flee to our own bank accounts, to flee to our to our own relationships, to flee to those worldly and earthly resources that bring us comfort and security, at least for a moment. That all of us in some way are tempted, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, to keep our minds or our eyes on those things below, that which is earthly, as opposed to those things which are above where Christ is. God tests the righteous so that he might raise our eyes off of the folly and the failing quality of this world so that we might gaze on and hope in and become more like the one who will never fail and never fade and never be destroyed. God tests the righteous. This is David's comfort. He looks at the circumstances around him, the circumstances that his counselors are freaking out about. He's looking at the circumstances. They're saying, you got to get out of here. You got to escape these circumstances however you can. Pain is bad. Prosperity good. And David's going, no, 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 no. My comfort, my foundation is that God tests the righteous. I'm going to stay right here for as long as he has me here. A brother that I know, a pastor, and his first pastorate, it came out that he was addicted to sexual immorality, to pornography. And once it came out, he was temporarily removed from his office. He was counseled. And he walked through all of this. This is the, the discipline of the Lord, the testing and the discipline of the Lord. And it was a really painful experience. And he ended up writing a blog post about it. And in this blog post, he remembers reaching a point in his life where it seemed like God had taken everything away from him. That he had sat under the Lord's discipline for months and months. It was agonizing and painful. And he says that he remembers falling down on his face at one point going, God, what more do you want from me? I don't have anything left to give. But he said that was the moment That he was confident saying, yet Lord, I will stay here as long as you want me here. That's what it looks like. To have as your foundation the Lord who tests the righteous. So that all those things which are impure and unholy and worldly would be burned away. And only those things which are true and godly and eternal will remain. That is where our hope and our joy is ultimately found. God loves you too much to have you love this world more than him. God tests the righteous. By the way, that brother has been restored since then. He's a godly and a faithful pastor. And one of the men I look up to as much as any. Praise God for his testing grace. But Peter says here, not only that, but God not only tests the righteous, but his soul also hates the wicked. This is one of those uncomfortable passages that means exactly what it says. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Bible teaches that God is adamantly and righteously angry, not only against sin, but against sinners. 
Notice here it says, his soul hates, not wickedness. His soul hates the wicked. God's wrath is a natural and a necessary part of his love. If God's If God loves that which is good and beautiful and pure, then he must hate and set himself against that which is set against whatever is good and beautiful and pure. And so I love my wife. And if my wife at some point were assaulted by another man and I was apathetic toward the assailant, Yeah, I mean, I don't like that he assaulted her, but I want to love the sinner. You would go, you don't love your wife. Love for wife looks like burning with righteous rage toward the one who would seek to assault and the harm the one whom I love. And so it is with God. And his love for his people. That his righteous wrath exemplifies and magnifies his love for his people in Christ. God would be less than God if he was not a God of wrath. His love for his people would be a fraud without an equally passionate hatred for the wicked. And yet, brothers and sisters... God, in his infinite mercy, has provided a way whereby the wicked can be counted among the godly. Because the very Son of God died in the place of the wicked. So that all those who are, in fact, wicked would no longer have God set against them as their enemy, but would now become friends of God in Christ. And that only by trusting in the finished work of Christ. The one who knew no sin, who becomes sin on our behalf, so that we, who are sinners, might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, friend, listen, if you are outside of Christ, you have not yet trusted in him, you are an enemy of God. God not only hates your sin, but he has set himself against you as long as you are outside of his son. And he is right to judge you. He is good to judge you. But his judgments have not yet come. And do not mistake his not judging you yet as impotence. It is patience. And the Bible teaches that God's patience is meant to lead many to repentance. Oh, friend, I hope that today that would be the day that you would not test the patience of God anymore. Because God's patience as an expiration date. But today he's given you yet another escape hatch, another way to be reconciled to him, to go from being an enemy to a friend by faith alone in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. Would you trust in Christ? That God judges. But lastly, God rewards. So we've seen that God rules, God sees, God judges. And lastly, in verses six and seven, God rewards. He says in verse Verse 6, here's where he judges the wicked. He says, let them rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For all you kids who grew up in Sunday school, does that sound familiar? God's judgment isn't fantasy and it's not fiction. God has already rained down coals of fire and sulfur in human history when when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet that was just a warning light like we have when we're driving our car. That's a check engine light for the rest of humanity. That if you don't pay attention, the whole thing's going to blow. It was a small glimpse of a fiery judgment that's coming again. That's why the apostle Peter warns the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. God's judgment is delayed as he watches and weighs the world. But God's judgment is coming. And yet, for all of those who by God's grace would turn and trust in Christ, verse 7, we see that they also receive a reward. 
that those who walk in Christ and by God's grace obey him, even in difficult times seeking righteousness, that their union with Christ is vindicated. And verse 7, the upright shall behold his face. God promises that those who trust him will see his face. God's, David says, I am comforted in times of trouble because God is sovereign and he rules. I am comforted in times of trouble because God sees what I cannot see. He says, I am comforted in times of trouble because though man's courts and judgments may fail, God's judgments do not fail. And now he's saying, I am comforted. Even in the face of trouble, because there will be a day where trouble will recede and I will see his face. This is the greatest reward possible if your heart says to God, your steadfast love is better than life. This will not be an attractive reward to you if you do not love God. There's no motivation in seeing God if you do not delight in him and treasure him. In fact, your greatest delight will just be having more of God's gifts. I hope when I die, I get more of the good stuff. The people that I miss. I hope that I can just play golf forever. I hope that it's sandcastles and seashells and sunny beaches. I hope that it's the absence of pain. Even that alone betrays the greatest reward of the righteous. The greatest reward of the righteous is that we get to see the face of God. Ladies, when you got married and you, the door swung open, or you single ladies as you have imagined this, the doors swing open and you're looking down that aisle. What are you looking at? You're not looking at Aunt Becky on the front row. You're looking at the face of your groom. You have been waiting for this day. You have been waiting for the day when you get to behold their face. And your eyes are fixed on it the whole way down. He's blubbering, he's crying. You're blubbering and crying. Your dad's blubbering and crying. But you want to behold his face. Nothing else matters. Love you, Aunt Becky. Ain't thinking about you. So glad you're all here. You might as well not be here. I'll see you at the reception. I see that person's face. If that is how we as flawed and fallen creatures understand and see that we want to see the face of the one who is the desire of our hearts in an earthly sense, how much more the one who is infinitely glorious will we want to see his face? How much more will the bride of Christ long to see the face of Christ? That is the greatest reward and a comfort for our soul. Listen, it's going to be really good one day to see believing friends who have passed away and left us here and who have died in Christ. It'll be really good to see grandmas and grandpas, and it'll be really good to see long-lost friends and, and family members. It'll be really good to be reunited with all of them, but that is not the greatest reward of the righteous, is that one day you get to be reunited with loved ones. The greatest reward of the righteous, the most wonderful thing, the basis and the foundation of our comfort and our longing as we look forward to that day is that we get to see him face to face, that, that we get to finally take part in Jesus' promise that I will come to you again, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Notice Jesus doesn't say that where all of your lost relatives are, you can be there too. What does he say? He says, where I am, you get to be there. You get to be with me. That's why John writes in 1 John, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's the greatest reward of the righteous. Not gifts, the face of the giver. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, John writes, Revelation 22. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. That's how the Bible ends. It doesn't end with great reunions with loved ones, though that's true. It doesn't end with getting just more of the good stuff that God's given you in this life, though that's true as well. It's a new creation. All of that means nothing if you don't have Christ. All of that means nothing if you don't get to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, that He has already, by His grace, shown into your hearts by His Word. This is why Paul says, for me to live is Christ. I want to live for Christ. I want my whole life, my whole existence, the way I think, the way I talk, the way I live, to be oriented around the reality of Christ. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How can that be true? What is he saying? He's saying, for me to live is Christ. Oh, (laughs) but for me to die is more Christ. I get more of him. That is the reward of the righteous. I wonder in times of trouble, do we ever stop and look at one another? As we seek to empathize with one another and and mourn with those who mourn, that we set aside all of our practical advice for a moment, And we look at fellow sufferers in the face and we go, I know what it is to suffer. Oh, this is so hard. God is good and he is sovereign and he sees and he judges righteously and justly. Oh, listen, one day we're going to get to see him. We're going to get to be with him. And there will be nothing accursed anymore. We will see his face. And then we lock arms and we help one another faithfully endure this life so that we might stand in that day and receive the reward of the righteous by his grace. Let's pray.